Father, we come before you now in the matchless name of your son, our king, our savior, our advocate, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, you are the, 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 the focus of your son. The Lord Jesus Christ did everything to please you. And we, therefore, Lord, also seek to please you. We look forward to the day that we will be with you in your fullness, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in eternity, in the true ultimate Zion. But until then, we ask that you would open our eyes this evening, that we would behold just some of the glory of Zion, some of the beauty of Zion, and that that would strengthen us in our hearts so that we could walk worthy of the name of Christ and we could walk worthy as citizens of Zion. Holy Spirit, go before us now and do what only you can do. And that is open our eyes to see divine truth. Open our ears to hear divine truth. Open our hearts to receive it and have it planted deep within Holy Spirit, do an amazing thing now. And may this be a sweet time of worship. It's in Jesus' glorious name we pray. Amen. So like I said, last week, we looked at Psalm 51. And toward the end of Psalm 51, it said in the final verses, By your favor, do good to Zion. And we looked briefly at what Zion is, and so I want to just revisit that and then go further by looking at Psalm 48. Um, but a little refresher from last week. The word Zion, we said, first appeared in the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 5, verses 6 through 7. And what we're here reading in that section there, it's the capture of Jerusalem. Then one chapter later in chapter 6, verse 12, the Ark of the Covenant is brought to Jerusalem, and the Ark is to be kept in the tabernacle and eventually the temple when it's built. And it was there in Jerusalem, in that special place where the Ark was, where it was said God's presence dwelt. And so Zion became synonymous with the presence of God. And I just want us to remember that as we now begin to work our way through this glorious Psalm 48. Because we're going to see a fuller, richer understanding of Zion. Now, again, by way of uh, refresher, we saw in Psalm 50 when we talked about physical Zion being Jerusalem. We talked about ultimate Zion, the ultimate presence of God being the Lord Jesus Christ. And we said that Jesus was the ultimate Zion because Jesus was God in the flesh. And so the presence of God fully in him. So Jesus, the God man, you can say is ultimate Zion. And then we talked about the church, the body of believers being corporate Zion. Because the spirit of God lives in every man, woman, and child who has bent the knee to Christ. But then there's also future Zion, which we didn't talk about. In future Zion, 
is where you and I, the church, corporate Zion, is perfectly united to ultimate Zion. Let me say that again. The future Zion is where the church is united to Christ, where corporate Zion is united to ultimate Zion, and that is called the new heavens and new earth, the new Jerusalem. Listen to what it says in Revelation 21, verses 1 through 3 about this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. That is a reality for us. There is a day coming where you and I will be bodily resurrected and bodily united with God in his fullness in the person of Jesus Christ. That's amazing. That ultimate Zion is amazing. I know we've already, we've already said enough truth in the first few minutes here to just enter the night and pray and worship. But we're not going to do that. We're going to work through this psalm, right? Um, so just keep in mind as we work through it, every time we talk about Zion, it's God's presence with his people. That might be an easy way to think about it. Zion is God's presence with his people. So let's read this psalm together and then work our way. Great is Yahweh and greatly to be praised. In the city of our God, his holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king, God in her palaces. He has made himself known as a stronghold. For behold, the kings assembled themselves. They passed by together. They saw it. Then they were astonished. They were dismayed. They fled in alarm. Panic seized them there. Anguish as of a woman in childbirth. With the east wind, you break the ships of Tarshish. As we have heard, so we have seen. In the city of Yahweh of hosts, in the city of our God, God will establish her forever. We have thought on your loving kindness, O God, in the midst of your temple. As is your name, O God, so is your praise to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is full of righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. Walk about Zion and go around her. Count her towers. Consider her ramparts. Go through her palaces that you may recount it to the next generation. For this is God, our God forever and ever. He will guide us over death. The first point I want us to see is that the glory of Zion is the glory of the king. The glory of Zion is the glory of the king, verses one through three. So the first thing I want us to just, if you're taking notes to write down, is that God is worthy of all our praise. Really think about it. He's, not, he's worthy of all of it. We've gotten so casual in our conversation about God. Think about how we talk about God. 
you know, we're so quick, you know, somebody says some good news, you know, it could be anything. Hey, you know what? I was trying to get to the movies and there was traffic, but it opened up in time and we got there just in time. And we're like, wow, praise God. Really? Praise God? Like, did that come from a place of truly praising God for that? Or has that just become some evangelical version of saying, well, that's great. We've gotten really casual with our conversation about God. But to think about the word, those two words, praise God, those are weighty things. We're talking about the one who's created everything, who holds everything together, who has redeemed our souls, who is sanctifying us by his word and by his spirit, who has established his church, who is raising dead men and women to new spiritual life, who will return and be done do away with all death and sin and sadness and establish a kingdom of glory, peace, and joy. So let's make sure we're not saying praise God as some kind of Christianese version of, well, that's great. Awesome. Great news. If we're going to say praise God, let it truly be to praise God. Let's not turn that into some Christian catchphrase. Maybe a question to kind of get us going in the right direction. And I've said this before is how much do we know about the God we are praising? Again, this goes back to what I said this morning, right? Biblical illiteracy. <clears throat> so many people want to praise a God we, they, know, they know nothing about. But listen to what he says here in verse 1 of Psalm 48. Great is Yahweh and greatly to be praised. Yahweh, the triune God, is unlike anyone or anything else. He is beyond comparison. This is why when Moses asked him, who should I tell him sent me? He says, I am who I am. There's no comparison to God. And so we need to be praising God for who he is. Great is Yahweh. Why is Yahweh great? What makes him great? Let me just list off some attributes here. And this is, I'm so excited for our next series, Firm Foundations, because we're going to be looking at some of these things in greater detail. God is perfect, eternal. Self-existent, unchanging, all-powerful, all-knowing, always present. God is holy, righteous, truthful, faithful. God is perfect love. God is perfect justice. God is the creator and sustainer of all things. He is Lord over all. He is lawgiver and judge. He is our redeemer. He is our sacrifice. He is our hope. He is our joy. He is a, ver- a present help. He is our advocate. And that we can keep going. So when we say great is Yahweh, great is God, when we say praise God, when we praise God, is that what we have in mind? Because right here, this psalm starts off with great is Yahweh and greatly to be praised. But are we praising him for who he is? Are we praising him because of the blessings we're receiving? Chiefly. God is also to be praised for what he's done on the behalf of his people. That is part of it, for sure. We should always praise God for his actions toward us because his actions toward us reveal something about who he is. But let's get in the habit of praising God first of who he is independent from us. 
Now, here he is. Great is Yahweh, greatly to be praised in the city of our God, his holy mountain. Think about who these people are. A struggling nation of former slaves and exiles. He places them in a rich land so that all the other nations will see how great Yahweh is in and through his people. And so they are to praise him. Praise him for who he is. Praise him for what he's done. The fact that we even are allowed to praise God should cause us to praise God. Do you realize that? God has given you the privilege to open your mouth and praise him. Who are we made of dust to praise God? And yet he invites us and commands us to open our voices. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, I love how it says it in the first question. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. And so this praising is also worth noting is not for Jerusalem alone. Look at verse two with me. Beautiful at elevation, the joy of the whole earth. Joy of the whole earth. The city of God is the joy of, for all people. In some ways, he's not, he, he's a very inclusive God. I invite all men and all women of all nations and at all times and in all places to praise me for my greatness. How can God say that he is the joy of the whole earth? Because the God who dwells in Zion is the God who's made all things. And so again, it really shouldn't surprise us that the whole earth is to praise him. It's been in the Bible since the very beginning. If you were to go to Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. What is these, What were Adam and Eve commanded to fill the earth with? Image bears. And you could actually say Genesis 128 is the first great commission. To fill the earth with followers of Yahweh who reflect him. There was no Israel in Genesis 1. There was just Adam and Eve. And so from chapter one, we see it's God's plan for the earth to be filled with those who reflect him and worship him. But then we see in Genesis 15, five, when God is talking to his servant, Abraham. Now look toward the heavens and number the stars, if you're able to number them. And he said to them, so shall your seed be. You go to chapter 7, Genesis 17, verses 4 and 5. Again, this conversation with Abraham. As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you will be the father of a multitude of nations, and no longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. God is the God of the globe, not just the God of Israel. And this is why 
He is the joy of the whole earth. That has been God's plan from the very beginning, that every tribe, nation, and tongue would praise him and worship him. The world was always meant to find their joy in the king of Zion. Now, our English translations are a little funny sometimes, so there's something that can be missed here. And it's that phrase that you see in verse 2. Beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion in the far north. Some Bibles will not have in the far north, and they'll have the, the word Zaphon there. And so what's important for us to understand here is that in Ugaritic myths, which was a people group back then, in the far north is where, these, where people's false gods would assemble themselves. And so the, psalm, the, the psalmist seems to be having a play on words here. He's saying it's actually in Zion where the one true God resides. The king of Zion is the king of those supposed gods of yours in the far north. He is the true king. And so it's, it's really calling everybody to leave their false gods, to leave, uh, to, to leave you joyless because they don't do anything because you've created them and turn to the one true God over the whole earth. This is another reason. Beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion in the north. I want you to think about those people that live on your street that don't know Jesus. Do you know it's God? It's, it's in one sense, you can say it's God's desire for them to worship him. God created them as he's created all people with the purpose of being image bearers. And so if that's true, and he's supposed to be the God who brings the joy of the whole earth, these psalms were to be sung. Are we singing the praises of God and inviting others into the joy that's in Mount Zion in the north? Or are we holding this back? Are we withholding from others? I'm not telling you to go preach on street corners. I'm not saying to go put tracks in everybody's doors on your street. I'm simply saying, let your life sing that great is Yahweh. And greatly to be praised. There are a lot of people out there that are citizens of Zion and don't know it yet. Think about that. There are people that you're walking past in the grocery store, driving past on the road, that are citizens of Zion, they just don't know it yet. That's a beautiful picture to think of. And so let's live like God is the joy of all the earth. One of the things I, 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 I frustrates me is how serious Christians can be sometimes. Almost like, you know, as if having joy and happiness is a bad thing. I always want to try, and I'm guilty of this. I'm a pretty serious person. Um, let's take God serious, but let's not take ourselves too serious. God, take him very serious with reverency. 
But this is the God who's created every good and perfect thing. He's the God of joy, happiness, and pleasure. At my right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's an amazing thing. It's, a, it, it's sad that the, earth, the world thinks that we just sit around serious all day as a chanting, you know, chanting in Latin and, and just reading by candlelight. No. Let, us, let them see us having fun and playing with children, joking with one another, enjoying a good meal with laughter. He is the joy of all the earth, but all the earth needs to see that joy in Zion. If the people of Zion aren't displaying that God is the joy of all the earth, why would they think he is? Now he goes on here, verse three, God in her palaces, some translations say citadels, has made himself known as a stronghold. Now a palace or a citadel uh, was a fortress. It's a part of a building that was especially fortified to protect against attacks. And so what the psalmist is saying here, when it says that God in her palaces it wasn't your fortified structure that kept you safe. It is God who kept you safe. It was God who kept you secure. God, not structures, is what gives security. The psalmist is saying, don't start thinking that it's the work of your hands that keeps your enemies at bay. It's the presence of God among his people that makes it a fortress. And that's a strong word for us today. Our security doesn't come from our programs or our policies. Our security comes from God who himself is our fortress. If God is for us, who can be against us? It says in Romans 8. Martin Luther wrote that beautiful hymn, A mighty fortress is, a, is our God, a bulwark never failing. And so we see here that our first point, the glory of Zion is the glory of the king. Our second point is the glory of Zion is the triumph over her enemies. The glory of Zion is the triumph over her enemies. Look at verses four through eight. For behold, the kings assembled themselves. They passed by together. They saw it. Then they were astonished. They were dismayed. They fled in alarm. Panic seized them, anguish as a woman in childbirth. With the east wind, you break the ships of Tarshish. As we have heard, so we've seen in the city of Yahweh hosts, in the city of our God, God will establish her forever. Physical Zion here, incorporate Zion has often been attacked. The people of God in the dwelling in the, the, the physical dwelling place of God in the Old Testament was always under attack. And so we're reading here of different kings and, and, and leaders coming together, assembling, uniting to wage war against God and his people. Kings assembled themselves. And I'm sure these, they probably felt really confident. If you think about it, they had large military numbers. It's as if they were looking upon Jerusalem and they could taste victory as their ships were sailing in. They were already probably planning how they were going to celebrate their conquest. But they forgot something. 
that they weren't fighting simply the people of Zion. They were fighting the king of Zion, who is the one true God. Their arms were simply too short to get into the boxing ring with God. But it didn't stop them. They, you know, may, that doesn't stop any man. Man will still try to wage war on God. But look how it turns out. They're left fearful and failing. Verses 5 and 7. They saw it. Then they were astonished. They were dismayed. They fled in harm. Panic seized them. Anguish as a woman in childbirth. With the east wind, you break the ships of Tarshish. See, when you come face to face with the Lord, when you come face to face with Yahweh, there's only two possible responses. You're either going to be filled with joy or filled with fear. We could say fear and fear, reverential fear and fear of I'm in trouble now. But the people of God will see the God of Zion and joy will fill their hearts. But when the people that are not part of Zion see him, truly begin to see him, they're filled with fear. These kings that were sailing in on their ships, they, I love the way it says, they saw it, comma, you just got to pause. It was as if at that moment it was like, oh man, we made a huge mistake. And you can't turn around. They're not going to, they can't pop a U-turn in the, in the sea there. There was something about what they saw in Zion that froze the hearts. What is it that they saw exactly? We can only speculate, but they saw it. Somehow the glory of God in, in Zion was visible to them and they were frozen. They knew God is here. If they don't flee, it's a suicide mission and they know it. The fear of Zion was the fear of the king. People need to once more have the fear of the Lord in them. We need to stop making God out to be this cute kitten that people can cuddle with because he's not. He is the lion of Judah. He is Aslan. He is on the move. When he roars, every knee shakes and bows. These great armies with their mighty warships of Tarshish meant nothing because the king of Zion simply needs to leave, lift his hand and a raging wind dashes it to pieces is what it says here. With the east wind, you break the ships of Tarshish. God is the one who controls the winds. That phrase, east wind's important because it's a, it's a phrase that's used to describe divine judgment. See, there's so much we miss here when we just read over it right, that we wouldn't get. But that phrase, east wind, means divine judgment. Listen to how it's, it's written in Jeremiah chapter 18. Jeremiah 18, verse 17. Like an east wind, I will scatter them before the enemy. I will show them my back and not my face in the day of their disaster. You see that like an east wind. Or Hosea chapter 13. Verse 15. Though he is fruitful among the reeds, an east wind will come. The wind of Yahweh coming up from the wilderness. 
and his fountain will become dry and his spring will be dried up. It will plunder his treasury of every desirable article. These kings, they're going to come attack Zion. We're going to plunder it. We're going to make it mine. But an east wind of wind of judgment, God's mighty hand will come upon them, is what it is saying. And they knew it because it says panic seized them. They were dismayed. They fled in alarm. They knew that he would shatter their ships. He would shatter their might is what that's saying. He would take away their strength. And so if this is what God is doing, then as a church, for each of you, whatever battles you're facing, understand this. In the midst of attack, the most important thing we as followers of Jesus can do is take a step back and let God do the fighting. We pray, he fights. So often we want to be the ones to fight these battles and and take care of what we perceive to be our enemies. But we just make it worse. Let the one who can bring up an east wind and destroy the ships of Tarshish be the one who fights for you. Let the king of Zion fight for the people of Zion. Because when we do, he will be the one to secure the safety and the victory of his people. He said the gates of hell should not prevail against his church. So again, we look at the culture, we see what's going on, and it's as if the world, it's as if these ships are coming up the sea to the harbors. And we begin, so many in the church, I, I, I hear it all the time. And I felt it. What's happening? Is the church going to make it? The king of Zion will not let Zion be extinguished. We don't win necessarily in this world, but we win in eternity. The world's focused on winning here now. It's short-sighted. God will secure the ultimate victory for the people of Zion. Verse 8 is very instructive for us, though, because look at it. As we have heard, so we have seen. You see, the people of Israel here, the people that are it's being written to, from their very youth, they had been taught about the Almighty God. They had been taught about the things he had done in the past. It was recounted at festivals to commemorate it. But they'd also seen it with their own eyes. It went beyond what they knew to to what they had also experienced. So they cognitively knew it, but they also knew at at the heart level that the king of Zion protects the people. It's, you know, oftentimes you'll see in your Bible, the Lord of hosts. What that means is the Lord of armies. God has a mighty army. Jesus, I remember when Jesus was talking to Pilate, he said he could call down an army of angels. God is in the business of securing a victory that's an eternal victory. And notice it says here that he will establish her forever. He will establish Zion forever. You have to know, and I have to know, we just have to resolve to accept the fact that attacks will continue on the church. Corporate Zion is going to be continued to be attacked 
but the gospel will prevail. Enemies will flee. The glory of Zion will shine forth. And then we're going to sing about it for all eternity. But until that day comes, we have to, if we're going to fight, we need to fight in prayer. And when we're fighting in prayer, we fight in prayer while resting securely in the fortress that is God. Rest in the Lord and lift up your voice to prayer and let him do the swinging. So then we go to verses 9 through 11 for our third point. The glory of Zion is the joy of his people. I love this section of the psalm. We have thought on your loving kindness, O God, in the midst of your temple. As is your name, O God, so is your praise to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is full of righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. It's again, it's fitting. When you see the king of Zion triumph over enemies, you're filled with joy. How could you not? You just saw what seemed as an impossibility become a reality. He fought for her. And so he starts off here in verse 9, we have thought. Again, there's, a corp- there's such a corporate aspect to our praising God and our joy in God. And I think my heart is burdened because we've individualized our faith. Your, your faith is personal, but it's not private. Your relationship with God is personal, but not private. It's meant to be experienced corporately in the church. And just think about the way we talk about it. I've had my quiet time, my time in prayer, my faith, my relationship with Jesus. And all those things are true, but we've thought about it as if that's the only way. But it says here, we have thought. The people of God, Zion, is corporately coming together to think on, to consider, to meditate on the covenant love that God has bestowed on them. You know, God's love seems really small if you think God's love is only about you. But when you realize God's love is for all these people that I know and so many more globally I don't know, and people that have long been deceased and and for the last 2,000 years, Whoa, okay, wait a minute. His love's a little bigger than I thought. It's really vanity to, to make it so much about us as an individual and to lose sight of the, of the magnitude of God's covenant love for the people of Zion. And so we need to, to just come together as a church and, and, and consider the covenant love of God displayed through his judgments. And again, people say, I, I, you know, people, we, say, we, we as a church, Big C, say things like, well, that church really, I don't really fit in in that church or this in that church. If they're citizens of Zion, they're your people. They're my people. We don't have anything in common. He doesn't have to like the Chicago Cubs for me to praise God with him. 
They don't have to have the same. We don't have to be in the same age bracket to consider the greatness of God together and to praise him. It doesn't matter. We're united by him, in him, and through him. And so this is why we have thought on your loving kindness. You think all Israelites had all things in common? No. It's so interesting that the corporate call for the people of Zion to worship the king of Zion has nothing to do with common interests. It has to do with the one salvation that they all share. Now, again, we need to, we need to do this. We need to think on these things because throughout the week, we're all engaged in different types of vast spiritual battles. And we're trusting in the Lord to bring us through them because of his love. And so we need to consecrate our minds. We need to devote our minds and our hearts to the king and his people. The battles sometimes seem bigger in our lives because we have such a small view of the king. We have a small understanding of the king, which is where this psalm began. Great is Yahweh. Your battles will seem small when you have a proper understanding of the character of God. Your battles will seem huge and impossible when you have a small understanding of God. Your battles will seem large and impossible when you think you're alone. Your battles will seem very possible to secure victory when you recognize you're, con you're connected to the, the people of Zion. Uh, verse 10, as is your name, O God, so is your praise to the ends of the earth. Again, the glory of God and the praise of God extends to all four corners of the earth. The psalmist is making absolutely clear that the king of Zion was never meant to stay in one place, but that the praise of him was to ring out into the far stretches of the universe. C.S. Lewis, once, somebody once asked C.S. Lewis, what happens if we find out there's aliens? You know what C.S. Lewis said? I'm going to have to preach the gospel to aliens. Because the praise of God just keeps going out. It's not confined to any one area. Wherever it is we step foot, if a human being ever steps foot on Mars, well, then we, I pray that we're able to set up some kind of Ebenezer there that points to the glory of Christ. It's always been more than about physical Zion. It's always been about the future Zion to come. Where the people and the king are perfectly united. God is righteous. He keeps his promises. And this verse here makes it clear that his hand is never empty toward his people. So is your praise to the end of the earth. Your right hand is full of righteousness. The right hand represented power. So all that God is and all, all that God is, he is for his people. Think about it. God's righteousness is for you always and always will be. Is that not a comforting truth? His steadfast love is reflected in his righteousness. His righteousness is always for you. And therefore, your praise should be to the ends of the earth. And so it brings us to our final point, verses 12 through 14. 
the glory of Zion is the message for future generations. Let's look at them. Walk about Zion and go around her, count her towers, consider her ramparts, go through her palaces, that you may recount it to the next generation. For this is God, our God forever and ever. He will guide us over death. The writer of this psalm wants the hearers to do two final things. To worship God and to live on mission for God. The first is worshiping. He tells the people of Zion to walk around the city, to number the towers, to consider the ramparts, to pass through the palaces or some citadels. What he's saying is, I want you to go for a walk and open your eyes and behold the full strength of Zion. I want you to consider, examine, and contemplate in your heart all of its defenses, its fortifications, and its strongholds. That would create a deep sense of confidence, security in the heart of its people. And so he's saying is the city of Zion, you have great cause for worship because at every turn, God has been there watching over you. There's a rampart. He watches over me. There's another one. He's watching over me. I'm surrounded by them. You know, what we're reading here, there seems to be a procession going around the city. The people are all gathering for a procession around the city where they're worshiping the God of Zion and giving thanksgiving. The psalmist is calling the people to examine all of its fortifications and their symbols for God. He's not really saying that rampart is what secures you, but he's much as saying every rampart you see, every stronghold you see, that's a symbol for the strength of God for you and towards you. The towers of Zion show that she's unconquerable and that her walls are invincible because they speak to the omnipotent character of God. John Calvin writes in his commentary, in making mention here of her towers and walls, we are not to suppose that he would have the minds of the faithful to rest in these things. He rather sets them before us as a mirror in which the character of God may be seen, end quote. The glory of Zion was always meant to point to the glory of the king. When we see the glory of the king, we worship. But it was never meant to be worship alone. That worship would ought to compel us to start taking a part in God's mission. And that's the last two verses there. In verses 13 and 14, that you may recount it to the next generation. Each person of Zion is given a personal charge. That means you and I have a personal charge to make him known. Let me ask you this. Why do you think it's so important that we tell the next generation about who God is and what he's done in our lives? For those who are parents on here, why do you think it's important to let your children not only be taught the scripture, but let them know how God's working in your life? Because what's assumed in one generation is forgotten in the next. 
So if you just assume that the next generation is going to catch it, the generation after them is going to completely forget it. Hello, welcome to America 2021. Now, God has promised that his church would never be snuffed out. See, programs are going to fade away. Pastors are going to retire. Beautiful buildings are going to crumble. Saints are going to die. But God and what he's done will stand forever. And so we have this great privilege to pass the torch on to the next generation. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.2, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Matthew 28.18-20, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you and lo, I'm with you always to the end of the age. It's always supposed to be going to the next person. And so the question we have to ask is, are we faithful with that? Because you can get one through 12, right. And drop the ball on verse 13 and 14. And then all of that amazing glory that we hear in those 12 verses dies with you. So we need to be a church. We need to be a people. We need to be the people of Zion that are recounted to the next generation and the next generation and the next generation. So let's close by saying this. We've seen in these 14 verses that the glory of Zion is the glory of the king. We've seen the glory of Zion in the victory over her enemies. We've seen the glory of Zion being the joy of the people. And we've seen the glory of Zion being a message for future generations. Now, the physical Zion that these people were living in doesn't exist anymore. It's not there. It's gone. You you can't see all those ramparts and fortifications anymore. They've crumbled. But you can see the king. It doesn't mean the glory of Zion doesn't exist anymore. At the beginning, I said that the Lord Jesus Christ is the ultimate Zion. And by faith in him alone, we are united to him. And so the church can be Zion triumphant. We can be true Zion and the glory of Zion can shine in us because we are in him. And because of that, the glory of Zion can still shine in the world. The glory of Zion can shine in Barrington, in McHenry, in Rolling Meadows, in Arlington Heights, in Inverness, in Crystal Lake, in Palatine, Vernon Hills, wherever you're at. The glory of Zion shines there as long as there are people there from Zion being faithful. It said, it's, we saw there, it said Jerusalem was an elevated city, a city on a hill. Interesting. I think there's a verse about a city on a hill in the New Testament. We need to remember that as we, tonight, as we, as we go tonight and we lay our heads in our pillows and begin another week, that we don't forget that because we're united to the king through the blood of Jesus, the glory of Zion lives in us and through us. And so let's remember these words from the King of Zion. 
you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. With that, let me close in prayer. And if anybody has any questions, I can hang out. Father, we come before you now and we echo that great are you, Yahweh, and you are greatly to be praised in your, in your triune fullness. You are the great king, but you are a spirit, and so you cannot be seen, but in your extravagant grace, you have made yourself visible to us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, God the Son, that you have taken upon a body which we just celebrated yesterday so that you can victoriously be the king who defeats sin and death, that you can be the king who is resurrected, ruling and reigning at the right hand of the Father. You can be the king that one day we will see face to face. But until then, we see you, we see the glory of the king of Zion in the glory that is the word of God. And we ask by faith in our union with you that you would allow the glory of Zion to shine in us and through us, to the world. We ask that you would strengthen us, O oh God, that we would be found faithful to recount this to the next generation. I pray, Lord, that when we are feeling fearful and worried of our circumstances, when they begin to feel like the ships of enemy forces coming into the, coming into the harbor, that we would trust in you and remember that you are the God with an east wind who can break the ships of Tarshish that we are simply to step back and allow you to fight for us. That when we begin to worry that we would take a step back as it says, and that we would walk around the city and look at the ramparts, look at the citadels, look at the palace and remember our God is for us. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. And you are all of that for us because we are in Christ by faith. Thank you, Lord Jesus, by coming and becoming our fortress. Let us never forget there was a time that we were on those boats wanting to plunder and destroy Zion. And yet you have made the enemies of Zion, children of Zion, through the shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. May we be thankful and may we remember that a city on a hill cannot be hidden. So let us shine brightly the glory that is Zion. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.